Well, in verse 11 of uh, Ephesians 2, Paul says something that's very, very common in all of his letters. And in fact, he echoes a familiar refrain in all of Scripture. What you could argue is actually fundamental to the Christian life, fundamental to being the people of God, fundamental to understanding how we live in the world as it is, as it was, as it will be. He says, therefore, remember. Remember. And just generally speaking... How does the call to remember land on you? I say remember. Maybe something comes to mind right away. A seminal event or a season in your life comes to mind. What do you remember? What's the big thing, the heavy thing, maybe? Do you feel a sense of relief or gratitude when you compare the present to the past? Or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe uh, it's a sense of grief and regret when you survey the past against the present. This past year, I turned 45. I lost my last remaining grandparents. Uh, My kids now have adult bodies. Uh, One is driving all over Kingdom Come, or at least it feels like he is. Um, Me, I'm pretty healthy, but my body still regularly reminds me how not 25 or not 35 I am. And so it's been strange you know, I've been in the season, certainly, of surveying and, and really just reckoning with the present. It's been strange for me to get on a dirt bike or a surfboard and think a whole lot more about staying upright and injury-free than just going full send, you know, which used to be my way. My mom always told me, Seth, don't overdo it. Well, I don't overdo it anymore, Mom, if you're watching by chance. Ashley and I often talk about how we wish we could... Uh, have been who we are now to each other back then, 20 or even 10 years ago. I think more about my kids' future than my own, thinking more and more about the father I've been and what that will ultimately mean to who they're becoming. There's a lot of remembrance, a lot of memory, a lot of weighing, a lot of thinking, a lot of contemplating. But when we talk about remembrance, whatever you're feeling or thinking right now, whatever the volume remembrance or the remembrance in your own life, there's no arguing about the power of memory to us as self-conscious, as sentient beings set apart among creation to remember. There's no arguing how this power of memory shapes the here and now for us. How the quality, how the accuracy of our remembrance informs our present understanding at levels deeper than we really understand or know. The past is always present. That's something Edwin Friedman said. Uh, And I think about it often. The past is always present. We're living with it. It shapes us. So what we remember and how we remember it might be as important to our emotional and our spiritual health as virtually anything else. As Christians, we go back to the story of Eden a lot. Uh, Even Sharon mentioned today, making sense of the gospel, we go all the way back to Genesis, Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. It's the right thing to do. The first sin against God and against the good of creation began with a memory question. Do you remember? What was the question? The serpent said, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And then it got pretty messed up from there, didn't it? Think about it. The serpent put Eve's remembrance to the test. And to some degree, it failed her. She got most of the details right. But what emerged from that cloud of forgetfulness and persuasion was this faulty idea of God. And what did that idea do? It stripped him down, leaving only one thing in view in her memory. The good that he might be withholding from her. 
from them. The serpent helped Eve forget the good, forget the good God she had known and experienced. The serpent helped her reduce him to one prohibition that at the moment felt suspect. It even felt selfish of God. The persuasion of the present put a thickening cloud over the clarity of the past, over reality. Once they left the garden, the memory of a lost but a better way of being became central to the biblical narrative. And I believe it became central not only to biblical anthropology, but also to just anthropology in general. The memory of Eden lost is at work in the deepest recesses of our hearts. We live out of this. It drives human aspiration to find or to recover a sense of divine blessing and presence. It's the longing for transcendence. It drives this pursuit of transcendence. It drives this pursuit of fulfillment. And why do we think it's there to be had? I believe it comes from this memory of being lost. It's a longing to get the good back. This deep memory of Eden lost makes even the most nihilistic atheist expect goodness and beauty and truth in the world, even if they're unwilling to admit any meaning or purpose to life. Why do we expect it? I want to suggest that we remember it in some sense. It's the norm. It's what we were made for. Think about this. If anyone is ever heartbroken, anyone is ever disappointed, Anyone wounded or indignant or remorseful, it's because she believes things should be different. Why? Why do we believe people should be better? Virtually all of us, whether Christians or not, operate with what that, you know, that should, that sense of the should, with an expectation of or just an imagination for order, for understanding, for mutuality, for even prosperity. We might disagree about what that includes or how to get it, but the desire for all that is there. Where does it come from? The ancients believed that our thoughts originated somewhere in our midsection. Why do you think that is? Because that's where you feel the anguish. That's where you feel the hope. That's where you feel the joy. Beneath it all, we want the world we were made for. We want the relationships we were made for. We want the love we were meant to give and to receive. Virtually everyone has an expectation of something better. And so we all have a theology of sin and redemption. It's in us. We have lived this story whether we know it or not. Does that make sense? No? You want me to start over? (laughs) So as the biblical story unfolds, the festivals of the Old Testament all came to be remembrances of what? Of the story, of the way it keeps playing out, of God present and God rescuing. All these historical events when God showed up to rescue, to restore, and to remind. The Feast of Tabernacles recalled the temporary dwellings of Israel in the desert as God led them out and took care of them. Weeks, the Festival of Weeks, or Pentecost, we call it, was an occasion for reflecting closely on the giving of the law at Sinai. God coming to make known what's fundamentally true and helpful and good for his people as they move through the wilderness, they move through the world, through history. Every week, the Sabbath reminded them, reminds us that God himself rested on the seventh day. Of course, he didn't need it. He did. It was after he made the world good. He rested 
So six days of their own toil, of our own toil and hardship, weren't met with the balm. Uh, they, they were met with the balm of that memory that God rested. It reminds us that we weren't just made to produce or to consume. That even before the toil of working the ground and before the curse, there was rest to be had in God. And so we meet God on that Sabbath. We're reminded who we are. And then there was Passover, arguably the most iconic festival uh, of all at which the escape from slavery in Egypt was not only recalled, but what was it done? It was reenacted. They would, put, uh, they, they would embody it. They would put the sandals on their feet. They would dress up uh, and, and uh, have a stick in their hands as they go to relive the Exodus, not only as a record of the past, but also a reminder of their present as the people of God, a reminder of who they are, that they belong to God, and as a reminder of His promised future, that they're going in to the promise. This remembrance pattern is even lived out in later festivals of the people of God. Purim recalled the events of the book of Esther. Hanukkah is, it marks the Maccabean revolt. This is a pattern, a way of being that was given to God's people. Read Psalm 105, 106, 136, 143, and others, and you see that remembrance is so much a part of prayer and life in God. We've got to remember. And even a cynic like the writer of Ecclesiastes suggests that the way to face an otherwise pessimistic future is what? In chapter 12, he says, remember your Creator. And so at the birth of Jesus, the dawn of a new future, Mary and Zechariah, they both recognize this joyous event as a sign that God has remembered past promises. They remember His remembrance. 33 years later, there's Jesus enjoying His last Passover with His disciples, but there's a twinge of sorrow, of weight. The shadow of the cross is growing longer, and He tells that Passover story again, but with a surprising twist. He is the new meal of their deliverance. He is the one sending them out. He embodies in life and death the ever-faithful and the ever-loving God, moving again to restore His whole world through His people from the curse of sin. So, of course, He told His disciples, do this in remembrance of Me. Do it again and again and again. Relive it with the expectation that He would be there living it with them. He would be there here living it with us. So, in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul understandably wants them to remember. And remember well. And he begins the letter with beauty. Uh, we spent a little time in Ephesians 1 last week. We read it, of course, and I just hinted at it. But the letter begins with the beauty. Uh, the, uh, he begins with the end in mind, the inheritance that they have. In chapter 1, he paints the picture, the, the portrait of a family to which they now belong, an inheritance which now belongs to them, not because they deserve it, but because of God's blessing. And he prays that their eyes will be opened, that their vision will be illumined by this reality of something even more than the deposit they already have. A full and final blessing awaits. And it's the new Eden. Because right now, to those he's writing in Ephesus, life for a Christian is hard. They're losing heart. So he says, remember. And that's what chapter 2 is about. And he begins saying, you were dead. Remember that. You were dead following the feudal ways of this world, the course of this world. 
He makes it inclusive. He says, we were all living like that, which is interesting given that he was a Jew. But he says, we were all living like that. But the God who's rich in mercy because of the great love he has for us made us alive and raised us up with Jesus. You didn't earn it or achieve it. God did it for us. And now that we've been reborn as the beauty of his workmanship, we're working for beauty and goodness and restoration in the world. We're beginning to send out to the world these hints and the hope of a restored Eden. We're beginning to live it in his strength and his power and his guidance more and more. Not perfectly, as we say, but persistently. And this is where our Ephesians reading picks up today. Verse 11, he says, Therefore, remember, remember that you, according to the human means that once set apart the people of God, you hadn't done what was physically required to be in the family. You weren't circumcised. You were born outside the covenant. You were a stranger. You were an alien. But now you're citizens, you're sons and daughters with access in one spirit to the Father. You are family. Remember what God did to make that so. It was the plan all along to extend the boundaries of this family to the whole world. Israel brought the plan forward to be sure God had to remind them to remember. And that was the thing that Kierkegaard acknowledged in a prayer, that the, the, the irony of the fact that the one to be remembered graciously reminds us, rememberers, to remember. He reminds us to remember. The Lord has always done that. Now in Jesus the Messiah, those walls that once divided have come down. New walls have gone up, and they're not hostile walls that exclude, but walls that graciously gather, walls that unite for worship. It's a new temple. It's not one where the Gentile converts have to do their thing out there in the outer court, but it's one where we're in this together. And in some sense, this is a really interesting thing Paul says here. He says, we are the walls of the temple rising as a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You might say we not only participate, we facilitate. That's important. Now, listen. The temptation might be at this point to let Paul, uh, Paul's teaching kind of float up uh, into merely a theological and doctrinal space here where we assume he is a kind of a disinterested messenger. He's a teacher explaining how it works. We love to do this you know, with, our, with our texts in this day and age, in the modern age. It's just go, he's given us the system of salvation and how it works. He's given us some history here and he's, he's bringing it all together. He's synthesizing it for our benefit and understanding. But if we take a wider view of his ministry, that sells Paul way short. An exercise in remembrance for Paul causes him to have to grapple with who he is. It always touches Paul in the hip, so to speak. It always reminds him of his own limp, his own alienation from God when, ironically, he thought he was so near to God and so for God. It reminds him of his nationalistic idolatry and all the ordinance to which he was apparently so faithful. He stood over the body of Stephen, consenting to murder. He was killing people for telling the very story he's telling right now. So to remember is not only vitally important, it's even in some sense painful. And yet at the same time, glorious to know that he's no longer this person. Paul was an enemy of Christ. And the pain of his own past was tied up in the very remembrance to which he is calling them. This we, this inclusiveness of Paul's 
language is important. And ironically, in every move Paul makes to remind Gentiles that they are undeserving beneficiaries of God's blessing and dear objects of his love, he's highlighting his own depravity and need of salvation. He was a bigot and a murderer. They were idolaters and pagans. But now they're forgiven. Now they're family. They all long for the same thing. They all long for Eden lost. Now they remember where it can and will be found. As a small child, uh, during what ended up being a four-year period of my father's absence and silence, the only thing I could really remember about him was his mustache and the freckles on his arms. And so every man I met or even saw with a mustache put me in the mind of my dad. And I would um, often look straight away, just right away to see, does he have the freckles too on his arms? Beneath that reaction to this memory of my dad was this strange desire for connection with whoever was in front of me, that I might experience something of my dad in this man. And I remember this, I mean, in my guts when I was a kid and feeling this on several occasions. And this was a way, this desire for connection was a way of redeeming my memory. And though I couldn't have articulated it then, making the pain of his absence and his silence go away or even lessen if only for a moment. And I think living under the cloud of all the persuasion we often feel, it leaves us only a vague sense of our Father in heaven and who He really is. It's like in some sense we're only living on the idea of a mustache and freckles. There's so much we so easily forget or obscure. And the truth is we settle for a partial idea or experience of Him. Sometimes we simply can't overcome the feeling of his absence that we've known too deeply or for too long or both. So we're called to remember in a unique way. Jesus called us to remember as we do in this way. He was drawing us back into the goodness of his own father. He was presenting to us, you know, more than, more than uh, mustache and freckles, so to speak, but so much more of who the father is. He's the, one, the Father is the one who sent Him for us and rescued Him for us, that we might be rescued. He was drawing us back to the beauty of His presence and His love, drawing us back to Eden lost, drawing us back to what Adam and Eve knew in the cool of the evening with God, that everything is okay and it's right and it's good. The future's hopeful and the past is beautiful. And I want to say... This is how confession, you know, back through a recognition of something hard, but also something hopeful. This is how confession as an act of remembrance heals. We bring the memory of our transgressions into the light where instead of feeling shame for them or defending ourselves, we can be forgiven and healed. Remember. Because in the remembering of who we were, it, there has to be tied up in that the remembering of who God is. We hold them together. That's what redemption is. This is why we insist that communion is healing. And I don't know what you think is happening, will happen when we come to receive, but we believe it's healing. We believe it is a, it is a remembrance that is deep 
in, so, in that it walks us into the very thing that I've described today. Jesus told this story of remembrance with his own body and blood, with his own story. He gave us a way to live it and to tell it with bread and wine. But what is tied up in that? Honest, honesty, confession, reconciliation, the humbling act of opening our hands and having a heart of thanksgiving. We can come as the wretches we are, those who deserve to be left out of the covenant. We can come and realize that is, in some sense, and in a deep sense, even the way we feel. That is who we are, and yet that is not ultimately who we are in God's eyes. Christian remembering is not the kind that whitewashes the reality of our world or of ourselves. At the heart of the gospel, at the heart of communion, is a realism that gathers our past and all its effects into the light of Christ's past. It connects us to Him in the present, where He promises to meet us. And it anchors this uncertain present to a certain future, to Him, when we shall see Him face to face. Henry Nouwen once wrote, and I'll close with this, the real enemies of our life are the oughts of the past and the ifs of the future. It says they pull us backward into the unalterable past and forward into the unpredictable future. But real life in the here and now. And as he expounds on this, what he is trying to understand is that in the here and now with Christ, both the past and the future are met. As you come to communion to remember, know this, Jesus is inviting you to a redeemed here and now. And whatever oughts darken your memories or whatever ifs hang over your future, Jesus wants to heal you right there, but he wants to heal you right now. When we open our hands in faith to remember, we open our hearts to Christ's presence and his promises. And these are grounded in what he has done. What he's done for us that is as real today as it was when he first broke the bread and passed the wine when his body was broken and his blood was poured out. So let me put it simply and maybe strangely. Today, Jesus is giving us today. But that includes the past and it includes the future. He's giving it back to us in His love as we remember how we arrived here. And, just a hint at the gospel today, what He is giving us is enough. Abundance. He's giving us enough. We are those who remember that it's enough. We're those called to the ministry of remembering for the life of the world. We remember and we hold the story out. We participate, we facilitate. We help the world remember a story they may have forgotten or never thought they knew, but by which they're still living in search of Eden lost, in search of love. We know where it can be found because we remember where Jesus is and where Jesus will be. We remember where Jesus has been, where Jesus is going and where he's taking us. We're the ones called to remember and the one's meant to hold out remembrance and invite people into remembrance so that that story we're telling can become the story they are living too. Do you remember that? And do you believe it? That's why we're here today. So I just want to encourage you as you come, bring it all. Jesus meets us now. He wants to give you today 
today. Amen. Father, thank you that you have sent your son to us and that together you've redeemed the world. You've redeemed the story. You've redeemed our past. You've made our present so indelibly connected to our future. And we want to receive today from you today. Help us to do that. Help us to open our hands, open our hearts to be the people living the story of remembrance. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.